0: All right, flip to Colossians chapter 4. We are nearing the end of our study of Colossians. We're going to look tonight at verses 2 through 6 and a message called Christian Conduct. And then, Lord willing, next week we will finish the the book and move on to other things. So let's stand together uh, as we read God's Word. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. These are the words of God Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the Word so that we may speak the mystery of Christ for which I have also been bound, that I may make it manifest in the way I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time, Let your words always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should answer each person. Let's pray. Our Father and blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And amen. You may be seated. Well, last week we considered Paul's household rules, and, and as they pertain to husbands and wives, and fathers and children, and masters and slaves. Um, if you haven't, uh, weren't able to hear that one, make sure you go back and listen. It kind of connects to much of the discussion we've been having, even as a church. But there, in that passage, Paul the Apostle demonstrates the covenantal reality of what we have in Christ and how that relates to certain covenantal institutions and arrangements. So we've been given everything in Christ. What does he expect of us now in our marriages, in our families, and in our places of employment and so on? Now, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11 verse 3 that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman, his wife, and God is the head of Christ. Because of this particular order, certain duties and responsibilities are attached to it. God grants the institution. God establishes the institution in his creational law and in his creational order. And God expects then certain outcomes. He grants the institution. Now, there are certain things that are supposed to be in place. He does not permit perfidiousness or, put another way, unfaithfulness. There is no room for unfaithful fathers, unfaithful husbands, unfaithful wives and mothers. Uh, It's not an option for us as Christians who confess Jesus is Lord. Now, keep in mind that when Paul issues these sorts of exhortations, he does so based on the aforementioned Christology of chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. So that's the center of the book, really. He gets it out of the way early on, but the Christ hymn, he is the, Christ is the preeminent one. He, he is preeminent in creation. He's preeminent in, in, in redemption. Everything centers on him, and then everything flows out of that. So that is the central motive, that Christ hymn passage is the central motive of Paul, both in his mission to the world and his encouragement for the saints in various locations. Like that, how else do you summarize it? What is the thing that motivates each of us? Gets us up out of bed, makes us go to work, do a good job, come home, be good dads, be good moms, what, be good kids, you know, obedient. How, how do we, what is the thing that motivates us? Well, it's Jesus. Never, never be bored of that, never be, uh, you know, tired of it it's Jesus. So in brief, the preeminence of Christ motivates and animates us for kingdom-focused work in the world, which, of course, encompasses all things. Jesus Christ, death and resurrection, his current session as the King of Kings, that is what motivates it, motivates life. He is the one who motivates us. Now, let me say it a little differently. Christ the Word transforms us by the word and subsequently gives us the inscripturated word with the resultant effect of establishing his people and sending his people in the world for further transformation and cultivation. So you have been changed by the word of God, by the power of the word of God. Um, That is Romans chapter one. It's the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. So you've been brought into it. Nobody became a Christian because somebody slapped you upside the head with a Bible, right? So that came later. You became a Christian because the Holy Spirit changed your heart and the power of the Word of God took root. And then you saw the Word of God for what it is, and then you lived your life as a result. Now, you may recall me emphasizing back at the beginning of this series, that Paul's entire paradigm for ministry centers on the Lordship of Christ. His entire paradigm centers on Jesus being Lord. And we need to note that it's not enough to just say that Jesus is Lord. It's not enough to just say it, and nor is it enough to simply affirm that Jesus is Lord in our minds. Rather, subscribing to the Lordship of Christ which itself is, again, only possible with a changed heart empowered by the Holy Spirit. Subscribing to the Lordship of Christ involves a totalizing application of this Lordship in every area of life. And that's what modern evangelicals don't understand, is they want to keep Jesus in their nice little box. Well, I like to think of God this way. You know, God is very tolerant of my particular views of things, and so I like to think of Jesus like this. Nonsense. Nonsense. You don't get to put him in a box you're you're actually in the box (laughs) not him so subscribing to his lordship involves a totalizing application of this lordship into every area of life as kuyper exclaimed there is not one square inch in this world where jesus does not cry out mine now i realize today this is quite a scandalous way of thinking because for far too long Christians have not permitted Christ to have much authority except for what goes on in our quiet times and on Sundays. But what does it mean for Christ to be preeminent? For Him to have, quite literally, first place in all things. What do we mean by that? That Jesus takes priority in everything. For Him to be the fulcrum on which all things move and live and have their being. If Christ is Lord, church, then follow Him in everything. This is an echo of Elijah in his taunt with, with the, the Baal followers. If Christ is Lord, then follow him. But if man is Lord, then follow him. Be consistent in everything. This is the antithesis of history. Nevertheless, what we have here at the end of this short letter to the church in Colossae is a series of pithy exhortations coupled with praise for various ministry partners. The latter we'll consider next week as we finish the book. But tonight, I want to take our time with these handful of verses and focus our attention on Christian conduct. What is it that Paul decides to leave with these Christians at the very end of his letter, having established this grand edifice of Christ being Lord of all things? Now, Paul does not say everything there is to say about Christian conduct here. In fact, you could read Ephesians 5 and 6 and you actually end up getting a little bit more. But he says some things here. And we should take great care in paying attention to them. Being established in Christ, the church has a lot of new responsibilities that come with a whole host of new privileges found in Christ. So being in him, you have, each of you here today, and all the people who name the name of Christ across the entire planet, you have a lot of new responsibilities when you're in christ you have a lot of responsibilities that come in tandem with a whole bunch of privileges that you have in christ so we need to pay attention let's look at our passage here i'm going to give you a a bird's eye view quickly the colossians are called to be first prayerful that is verses two through four and in fact verse 18 look at verse 18 real quick paul ends the letter the greeting is in my own hand. Paul signs, puts his name there. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Remember my being in prison. Don't forget. Pray for me. So he talks about prayer there in verses 2-4 through four and then in verse 18. And he tells them to pray, obviously, for themselves. They need to be people of prayer. That's verse 2 here. Devote yourself to prayer. And for Paul he needs to be prayed for as well. That's the rest in verses 3 and 4. So they're supposed to be prayerful. The second thing they're supposed to be is watchful. Verse 2, section B, the second part of the verse, being watchful. Um, Paul urges them to not only be prayerful, but to be watchful. The third thing they're supposed to be, again, at the end of verse 2, is thankful. (laughs) So he says a lot in verse 2 here. He says to devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in it, and then he adds this phrase, with thanksgiving. So they're supposed to be a thankful people. The fourth thing they're supposed to be is wise. They're supposed to be wise. That's verse 5. The fourth part is for them to be to walk in wisdom. And then number 5, they're supposed to be good stewards of time. That is also in verse 5. You can see when he says redeeming the, redeeming the time. So prayerful, watchful, thankful, wise, good stewards of time, and then the last thing he says in verse 6 is they're supposed to be mindful in their speech. Uh, Actually, verses 5 and 6. So six things he tells them to do here. Let's work through the passage. We're going to analyze each of these aspects of Christian conduct. First, prayerful. (laughs) We are told to be prayerful, but not just prayerful, generally speaking. Rather, we are to be devoted to prayer. Look at verse 2, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, Paul and the mission team, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak the mystery of Christ for which I have also been bound, that I may make it manifest in the way I ought to speak. This first word here, devote, the word devote carries the idea of endurance or tarrying, Uh, One is to continue steadfastly in prayer, be committed to prayer, continually insist on prayer. And it's sort of what he says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that you're to, to never cease praying. Always be praying, never stop praying. And you think, well, how is that possible? Because, you know, it's hard for me to pray out loud when I'm brushing my teeth or something like that. How do I? Well, prayer doesn't always have to be audible. Prayer can simply be you meditating on the Lord and communing with God. And we know from Romans that Paul says the Spirit will often pray for us because we don't even know what we're supposed to pray. So prayer, though, you should know, to be devoted to prayer is to be driven by communion with God. That's the point of prayer. We're going to talk more about that later. But prayer ought to be a constant stream of conscious devotion to Christ. That's what it is. Prayer is a constant stream of conscious devotion to Christ. We must prefer it before anything else. We must be willing to cast everything else aside for a moment of solitude in prayer. I, I often struggle with this because it it can be very awkward. But have you ever been talking with a friend? Maybe you're having coffee together or something or lunch, and they said, "Would you please pray for me now?" usually someone would say well yes i mean who dare who's going to say no like no i refuse i refuse i will not pray for you good luck right (laughs) or to be more biblical good providence (laughs) and however you want to do that but i think what is interesting in those situations is is and i've done this but i'm not consistent in it just pray then right there you know just would you pray for me yeah let's do it right now why not why wouldn't we be so willing to just cast everything aside? Nothing else matters in that moment but communion with God and praying for that person. I think we could all learn from that. And, I, and we'll see maybe the rest of the evening unfolds and we'll see a whole bunch of that. Who knows? Maybe the Spirit will cause a breakout of prayer tonight. Wouldn't that be something? Now, we have to preserve. We're supposed to be devoted for to it. We're supposed to devote ourselves to it. it. means you have to consciously pay attention to it. It should be something that you run to quicker than you run to anything else, including your cell phone in your pocket. Run to the Word. Run to prayer. Devote yourself to it. Thomas Watson said that prayer is the soul's breathing itself into the bosom of the Father. Prayer is our communication with the triune God devotion is our insistence upon it prayer is our communication with the triune god father son holy spirit and devotion is our insistence upon it next paul says in verse 2 there for us he tells us to be watchful just as physical alertness is of great importance in self-preservation so spiritual alertness is of similar importance for spiritual preservation so to be watchful is to guard the heart and mind, keeping, it, uh, keeping the center of our very being from sin and danger. To, to be a person of watchfulness is to guard your heart and mind. You're supposed to pay attention to where your mind goes. Pay attention to where your heart tends to drive you because the heart is, it is desperately sick, uh, uh, Jeremiah 17 says, but we who have a new heart still struggle with putting off the old man. So the heart can drive you down the road, but it can, it can take the wrong exit at any point. So be mindful, be watchful. You have to keep the heart, the center of your being, from sin and danger. A watchful man or woman is an individual who is earnest in faith and conduct, unwilling to be slothful towards mortifying sin and cultivating, cultivating righteousness, that's just another way of saying you can't just put your feet up on the ottoman and expect you to not only not avoid sin, but also cultivate righteousness. We're supposed to be watchful. The, the prayer, by the way, he connects it here with prayer. Prayer is a form of watchfulness. Prayer is a form of watchfulness. The Christian devoted to prayer is a Christian vigilant in keeping himself from spiritual drowsiness and indolence. Peter says to pray and be alert, 1 Peter 4, 7. To be clear-minded and, and pray. He says also in 1 Peter 5 eight to be self-controlled and alert. Great exhortations. Be self-controlled and alert. Pay attention. Don't be lazy. Don't be indolent. Don't be drowsy. Um, watchfulness is the clear-minded, single-minded devotion to Holy Spirit-empowered holiness. Single-minded, resoluteness. Uh, William Grenall Puritan urges us, he, he says, to set a strong guard about thy outward senses. These are Satan's landing places, especially the eye and the ear. Sin can happen very quickly with your eyes and with your ears. And let us not forget what James tells us in your tongue, too. In other words, he says, guard yourself. This is my best description of watchfulness Put your heart in the tower of faith in order to keep an eye on yourself. Put your heart in the tower of faith in order to keep an eye on yourself. Additionally, Paul says that in our devotion to prayer, we are to be watchful with thanksgiving. He's already mentioned, by the way, thanksgiving in this, in this book. He's already said it seven times. Uh, twice in chapter 1, once in chapter 2, verse 7. And then in chapter 3, he did it in verses 15, 16, and 17. So thankfulness is clearly a motive of Paul. But here, thanksgiving is to be a mark of prayer, a way of identifying the nature of prayer. Think of it this way. To whom much is given, much is required, right? Jesus tells us that. You've been given Christ, which means you've been given everything. Therefore, thanksgiving is perhaps the defining mark of a Christian who realizes how much he or she has. If you don't have a life marked by thanksgiving, you are not following through on Jesus' demand. To whom much is given, much is required. Think of it this way too. Prayer Prayer is thus not a rote, exercise in verbosity you know let's just use a bunch of big words and yada 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 you know that's what jesus condemns the pharisees about but rather it's the humble sober recourse of a grateful christian it's just what you do you go to the lord in prayer well i don't know what to say if you don't have anything to thank god for you are blind and you're not paying attention thanksgiving in prayer is the natural consequence of a grateful heart. It just is. Thanksgiving in prayer is the natural consequence of a grateful heart. The prayer that Paul commends here is mission focused. Look at verses three and four. Praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak The mystery of Christ, for which I have also been bound, that I may make it manifest in the way I ought to speak. Sort of a clunky way of saying it. Paul enjoys long run-on sentences. But the Colossians here are bound up with Paul and the mission team, and thus their prayers are a means chosen by God to further the task at hand. Prayer is, is, is the engine here. It's driving the mission forward. That's why Paul wants their prayers. The door here is a metaphor for opportunity. And we all know that. We just You're applying for jobs, and you have a few jobs in the docket. Some of them you think you might get. And what do you, what do you end up telling people? Well, pray that whatever door the Lord opens, that I'll, it'll be there, and I can walk through it. It's, we always use that phrase. It's, it's an opportunity. When the door opens, it's an opportunity. And that's what Paul says here as much. Praying Christians are missionary Christians. I think it was Spurgeon, if I remember correctly, who essentially said... Look, Christians are either those who are sending people or they're people that are going. And that's it. You're, you're on either one of those. And, and there's a call for everybody in all things, but not everybody's supposed to go to Africa. But if we got people going to Africa, you need to make sure they get there. You're either, you, but, but that's the whole thing with prayer here. Praying Christians are missionary, missionary Christians. So in prayer, we ask God to advance His work through His people. So, not, not to be a, a, a trick question, this is a convicting question, uh, one that punches me right in the teeth too, but if God advanced the kingdom to the degree that you prayed for it to advance this week, how far would it go? Paul is in prison for the gospel, and rather than asking them to pray for his release, He asks them to pray for opportunities to make the gospel manifested in his preaching and teaching. Most of us would say, pray that I get out of here. I'm tired of it. The food's terrible. It smells funny. I want out. Paul doesn't even say that. He says, pray that while I'm in here, I can preach the gospel. What an attitude. The intercessory intercessory prayers of our brothers and sisters is a source of great strength, no doubt, But it's also a means that God uses to establish the kingdom of God among men. So pray for people. Pray for the mission. Pray for those who are going out, hitting the streets, going to the abortion clinics. Pray for those who, uh, even this week, go to the March for Life uh, to proclaim truth. Pray for them. The secret plan of God for the redemption of all things, he talks about this mystery of Christ, it's bound up in the Word of Christ, the Gospel, that has been revealed, and through preaching, it is being revealed. So as the Gospel is proclaimed, it's like the red carpet keeps getting rolled out for the kingdom. So Christ has been revealed, and yet somehow in in our preaching, He's being revealed yet again to people. And that's because faith comes by hearing. And what do we preach? We preach Christ. And we need to pray for this to continue. Next, verse 5. Paul says and tells us to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Walking is a favorite metaphor of Paul's, as it was a common metaphor in Jewish wisdom literature, and it referred to one's ethical conduct in life. Just look at Psalm 1. You remember uh, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked and so on. So walking is about ethics. It's about conduct in life. The Bible tells us a lot about walking, Walking in love, that's Romans 14 and Ephesians 5. Uh, Walking in light, 1 John 1.7. Walking in truth, 2 John and 3 John speak of that. Walking in the Spirit, we're supposed to walk in the Spirit, Galatians 5.16. We're also supposed to walk in newness of life, that's Romans 6.4. Walk in good works, Ephesians 2.10. Walk in a manner worthy of our calling, Ephesians 4. And then walk in the fear of the Lord. So there's a lot of walking going on here. Walking in all of these various areas. Walking in the fear of the Lord is from Acts 9. Here, walking in wisdom is situated within the context of outsiders or unbelievers. Those who are outside the visible church. We should not give unnecessary offense without regard to them. All right, Don't give unnecessary offense without regard to them. So if you're at the grocery store and the line's really long and you mutter something under your breath and they see that you have a a Jesus shirt on, oh, what have you done? (laughs) You've given them an offense that they didn't need an offense because you did something you shouldn't have. So we should not give unnecessary offense without regard to them, meaning we should care to some degree what they think. However, we should not shy away from giving necessary offense as it pertains to the centrality of Christ. We show up to George Mason, that'll be resuming in a couple of weeks, Lord willing, and they will say to you, well, this isn't very loving. Yeah, but you don't know what love is because you think love is love and you can't define a word by its own word that's illegal <laughs> or something like that. It doesn't work in the English language that way. How do you, find, how do you define love? Well, it's, 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 it's love. Well, you're unqualified to define that. So we'll go ahead and tell you what love is. And love is us speaking truth. So we should be okay with that. And we should be comfortable with that. And, and if the world is going to hate you, they ought to hate you for the sake of Christ, which Jesus says is a blessing. Blessed are those who revile you and say all things against you. For my name's sake, for his righteousness' sake. We want that to be the case. They should not hate you because you're a foolish hypocrite who lives inconsistently with the gospel. Here, Paul assumes that Christians are visible and vocal. They are to be visible in the world, which means you can't retreat from the world. You need to be visible in the world, and you need to be vocal. More on that in a bit. In the last part of verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, after urging us to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, he says to do so, quote, redeeming the time. Redeeming the time. In this context, Paul assumes that when we live our lives in front of a watching world, we must take advantage of certain times and seasons and appointments. You have to be paying attention as you're at the store, as you're out shopping, as, wherever you find yourself. You have to take advantage of certain times and seasons and appointments. We must embrace every opportunity for Christian witness, and we have to do it in a wise and sober way. So, and, and time is something we are all subject to, therefore we're supposed to use it wisely for the gospel's sake. So redeem the time. Don't waste it. If you have an opportunity, I know there's different levels of comfort with that too. Um, I've seen guys with um, as an older pastor, a friend of mine. He, he had a, very much the gift of evangelism. And we'd go to lunch and he would just, we would, we would have lunch together and the waitress comes up, what can I get you? Do you know the Lord? <laughs> And I always thought, oh, that's straightforward, okay. Um, but in a lot of ways, he was kind of a jokey, funny guy anyway, so he was always really good at getting people engaged, but he never really wasted a time, an opportunity to at least to some degree inculcate or perhaps speak or vocalize something related to the testimony of the gospel. And finally, in verse 6 here, Paul instructs us with the following. He says, Let your words always be with grace. That one hurts. Let your words always be with grace, seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should answer each person. Now, salt flavors and preserves. This is well known. Not a controversial point there, especially in the first century. Salt was something that flavored and was also something that preserved. But the point here is this. Like the salt that brings out the flavor, so our speech Towards outsiders ought to bring forth wisdom. That is the language here. Our words should first be full of grace, he says. They should always be with grace. We want gracious speech with the intention of honoring the Lord and giving grace to the hearer. And by the way, gracious speech is not something that goes against truth proclamation in the world. You know, it just if you're preaching Christ urging people to repent of their sin and trust in him for salvation, someone could easily say, well, you're kind of a big meanie head because you told the truth. Well, well, no, that's actually a very gracious thing. And perhaps perhaps there has been a street preacher somewhere who's gone over the line, or, you know, no doubt. We, we have sin, indwelling sin to fight too. But the point is, gracious speech should honor the Lord, and it's something that should resonate with whoever's hearing we want gracious speech. Second, it should be seasoned, he says. So your, your, your speech is gracious, your speech is seasoned. It should be wholesome and witty, appetizing and even succulent. Instead of, obviously language of food here, we're talking about salt. But instead of being shoddy and dull or insipid and boring, speech should be lively our speech should be very much lively we're not giving boring lectures where we're monotone the whole time and let me tell you about jesus and no be actually be alive because <laughs> you are alive lively speech gracious and exciting speech and make sure it's beneficial too if your words are like you know like totally like you know like incoherent <laughs> then stop talking <laughs> when when giving our words they should be colorfully edifying and intellectually invigorating which is why we're supposed to both know how to answer someone who may ask a question and also answer it winsomely being ready we're supposed to be ready peter says to give a defense give it what are people what are you going to say to people when they ask you why are you a christian uh i don't know you should be ready rehearse that in the mirror every day if you need to but you should be ready we are not man-pleasers who ingratiate the heathen, we are Christ-pleasers who cogently defend the truth. Proverbs 12:18 teaches us this. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 12:18. That is a very cutting, no pun intended, passage. So, how shall we then live? I want you to notice the train of thought here. First, we're dealing with prayer, personal prayers and thank, with thanksgiving, prayers for the mission of the gospel. We're dealing with prayer. Second, we're dealing with how we walk in a world where unbelief is still present and active, and in our case, ubiquitous. Third, we're dealing with not just how we live, but how we vocalize the Word of God. After all, it is a Word. Which is all to say, the believer's inner and outer devotion to Christ matters. Your inner devotion to Christ, the thoughts in your mind, the beliefs in your heart, the prayers uttered without vocal cords, that matters. But also your outer devotion matters as well. Unsurprisingly, God will only accept both as a unified, integral whole. He accepts both. And l- let me say it this way. Faith without works is a dead faith. Faith without works is a dead faith. That's what James tells us, right? You you, you say you have faith. Well, show me your faith. Because if you're just saying it, it's not faith. Faith without works is dead. And works without faith is a dead religion. So the inner and the outer life may be distinguished, but they may not be separated. They may not be separated. In our praying, in our living, in our witness, our testimony, in our preaching, we are to express the wisdom of God which was demonstrated in Christ our Lord. Now, not to insult everyone, but I'm going to state the obvious. We're, we're Christians. <laughs> we're Christians. And sometimes we need to be reminded of what that entails. Paul reminded the Colossians, and thus us here today, to be devoted to prayer because we are prone to forgetfulness and neglect. Why would he tell us to devote ourselves to prayer? Well, because we don't always. (laughs) Very simple. It is, listen, it is very easy. It's very easy to pay little attention to the discipline of prayer. It's very, very easy. And part of it is because we are prone to look through our eyes and not the eyes of faith. And we see everything. everybody's busy. we got busy, demanding jobs. We have a house full of kids that need a Christian education, and they, uh, we have to feed them. Everybody's busy. We've got to cook food. We've got all these obligations, and it never ends. And we're looking at all of that through what's in front of us rather than looking at it through the heart of faith. It's very easy to neglect the discipline of, of prayer. And I think that this is the case because prayer is an exercise of dependence, Prayer is an exercise of dependence. Most people neglect the discipline of prayer because they believe themselves quite capable of handling things on their own volition. I am convinced of that. Prayer is an exercise of dependence, and if your mindset is, I can handle it, that's why you don't pray. That's why you're not devoted, perhaps, to it. Or perhaps maybe you're not consistent. Maybe you have a season of like, all right, yeah, i got two or three days in a row where I've I've prayed for our people, I've prayed for this, that, and the other, and then you go for weeks without really getting back to it. When we devote ourselves to prayer, we devote ourselves to the Lord. That's the most important thing. A man whose self-sufficiency has surpassed and overshadowed his dependency on the Lord is a man who rarely prays. Let me say it again. A man whose self-sufficiency has surpassed and overshadowed his dependency on the Lord is a man, or woman or child in this case, who rarely prays. Show me a man who is devoted to prayer, and I'll show you a man prepared to change the world. And why? Because prayer leverages the power of God. And not in a manipulating way, by the way, but in a committed way. Prayer leverages the power of God. Prayer is the entrance into the gates of God's judicial sovereignty. When you go in prayer to the Lord, you are beseeching Him to act as the King and Lord that He is. John Bunyan said this, he said, Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. Prayer, when coupled with thanksgiving, is a form of watchfulness to guard the self from sin and temptation. And we must remember that when, when in prayer, and kids, you need to learn this early on. It'll save you from heartache in the future. Trust me. We need to remember that when in prayer, an unanswered request may very well be the answer God has given. Now, why did we call it unanswered? Well, because it wasn't what we wanted. And you have to be not only bold in asking the Lord for bold things, but you need to be just as bold in being willing to receive it, even if it's no, and especially if it's no. We often treat God like He's a cosmic vending machine. Put the quarters in, get the prize. But we are not praying to a machine. We are praying to the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We are communing with the Lord of glory. His no answer is still an answer. Take it. Take it. And we should take it. We should accept it. Our devotion to prayer should be unreservedly accepting of His will. Be accepting of it. Lord, this is what I see. This is what I'm asking. Whatever You will, I will submit to it. It's that simple. He, let's, maybe we should treat God like He's the providential one that He is. <laughs> When we pray, Matthew Henry, he's got a great book on this, by the way. Um, how, I think it's called How to Pray, if I remember. Ma- Matthew Henry reminds us and then in prayer, we should do a few things. One is praise God. We should praise Him. So if you don't know how to start in your prayers, get, get the Valley of Vision, get a, get a Puritan book on prayer. These men wrote extensively on prayer. But praise God. We should confess our sins to God. Praise Him. Confess. We should petition God with our requests, we should offer up thanksgiving for His sovereign pleasures, and we should intercede for others. It's really that simple. Praise, confess, petition, give thanks, intercede. Five things. You can do it in five things. Some people use the acronym um, ACTS, A-C-T-S um, your adoration, adore God, confess, thanksgiving, and then supplication. Uh Adore, confess, thank, and supplicate the God of heaven. It's a very simple pattern, but you should be thinking consciously about it. Prayer is often done as sort of a last-minute, mindless thing. Your mind should be engaged in it. You should be thinking coherently about it. Don't try to, oh, I got through the whole day. It's 10 o'clock. I'm exhausted. I'm going to pray. Anybody ever fall asleep in prayer? Go ahead. Anybody? Like, I, there's, I don't think that's a sin, and by the way. I heard one preacher years ago, I was maybe 16, and I heard him say, he's like, what better place to fall asleep than in the lap of your father? But I will say this, do it when your mind is right, so you can engage your mind. We're communing with God. Storm heaven with your prayers, the King has invited you. Furthermore, it is important to realize that faithless prayer is a fruitless life. Faithless prayer is a fruitless life. What goes on in the heart is what directs your life. Prayer is the means of aligning your heart, the center of your being, with the triune God. So, again, for emphasis, faithless prayer is a fruitless life. Therefore, devotion to prayer coupled with thanksgiving and gratitude provides one with the watchfulness necessary for obedience. Our devotion for example, to the world salvation is only as good as our devotion to prayer. We can, we can be the, the, the most ardent post-millennialists who are ready to storm the world with the kingdom of God. And we can have everything in line in all of that. And if we have forgotten our devotion to prayer, nothing will change. And we may try in our own efforts to declare the excellencies of God's glory, but if we are not synced up in prayer, we are doing it in our own strength. I think that's why Paul moves from prayer into the command to walk in wisdom toward outsiders, redeeming the time. Verse 5. It is assumed that a man or woman or a child who has spent considerable time in prayer will walk in life with wisdom. That is not always the mathematical input-output algebraic uh, formula. Devote yourself to prayer, you'll walk in wisdom. That's the general proverbial pattern. And we are meant to walk in wisdom and walk in front of a watching, indeed scrutinizing world. They're watching. They're scrutinizing everyone right now. I mean, that's been the case forever, but since time exists. But think about what has been said in Colossians up until this point. The mystery of the Messiah has been declared. The floodgates of gospel ministry have been opened. The, the Spirit is out there. It's, he's, he's turned loose. He's out there. There's no, there's no putting Him back. The Spirit has, is, is there. One, one writer said it this way, the announcement of the gospel is an apocalyptic event that includes a summons to its audience for faith and obedience towards the world's true Lord. And that's Colossians 1, an offer of reconciliation and forgiveness, a warning of judgment, no less, a declaration of God's triumph over evil through the cross, and a gift of hope to a world that was brutal, cold, and dark. That is Colossians. In light of this powerful move of the Word of God in history, we are called to a certain way of living and a certain way of doing. Our walk should be marked by wisdom because our hearts have been changed and we have a single-minded devotion to the Word of God in prayer. The same power that changed us now enables us to redeem the time, to live in covenant obedience, and thus buy back time. Think about this phrase, redeeming of the time. Redeeming time assumes that time can be wasted or held captive. Alright? We should buy it back out of the slave market. That's what the word redemption actually means. We should buy it back out of the slave market. In other words, your time should be freed for profitable use. I think John Piper said this years ago when Twitter was starting to take off. He said, Twitter is proof that when we get to heaven, we may not give the excuse that we didn't have time to pray. I'm paraphrasing, but you get the gist of it. I didn't have time to pray, Lord. Ah, let's look at your Netflix hours. Huh, interesting. We need to free time up. Redeeming, redeeming time. Do not waste time. God's covenantal feedback in history through the sanctions of His law word is how this is done. Um, we, we live in obedience. We proclaim obedience. And we summons the world to the same direction. That is how we redeem the time. And God blesses us as a result. And that is in His own good time. Remember, God grants repentance. Don't forget the story of, of, of Jonah and Nineveh. Go preach to them because I'm going to destroy the place. It's gone. He didn't go preach. Well, if I go preach, you're going to forgive them. Ah, isn't that the God you serve? So instead of leveling the place like they deserved, God granted repentance, bought them more time. That's the idea of redeeming time. Judgment is delayed. But buying, back, buying time back is a means of further obedience, not further disobedience. The Lord is our judge. He is always at hand, which means we should be watchful in our time. What do we do with our time? On top of this, when we live and do certain things in a certain way, the world, the outsiders, will notice and they will start asking questions. At some point, you will simply run into another image bearer, one who is caught in sin and transgression, and you'll have the opportunity to speak. It'll be right there in front of you. You'll have the opportunity to speak. That's the way it's designed. Here's kind of what I... This is my summation to Paul here. Christianity isn't a private religion behind closed doors, safely tucked away from any sort of pollination in the world. It's not. Christianity should never be tucked away. Rather, we live in the same world, breathing the same air as the unbeliever. In order to see them come to faith, the word of Christ must be preached. Christ was crucified in public, should our faith be any less public. Godly walking must be accompanied by godly talking. And when the two go together, the kingdom is furthered. So, let's wrap this section of Colossians up. Our life and speech should be appetizing to the world. It should be. But remember, even if they are repulsed, even if the world is is repulsed by our marriages, by our families, there's so much hatred towards homeschool. So much of it. Even if they are repulsed by it, by our life, how we live, the things we choose to do with our time, if they're repulsed by our doctrine and what we say we believe and we preach it, you should know that the repulsion is for Christ and everything that Christ gives a culture they hate him first the ultimate determiner of what is true good and beautiful is not the sinful man with a broken heart and a debased mind but the lord of glory and his law and his gospel so our task however is to be devoted to prayer to be devoted to to mastering the word of god so that it'll master us in a commitment And we are to be committed to making it known in the world. That is the task at hand. There, there should be an attractive presence in the world with a strong commitment to inviting men to come and follow Jesus Christ. And you might think that's crazy. You talk talk to to, to this just outlandish student. I just think of a few of those conversations I've had in the past. And and you think, what is the call, you sir, ma'am, whatever your pronouns. You need to come to Christ. And and you can follow that up and say, but you can't in your own willpower. It's the power of the word of God that has to bring you. And you need to repent of that. And you need to hear this truth. And you have to come to him. We should invite invite them to come to Christ. In our day, however, the repulsion is very palatable because the rebellion is filling up. God's wrath is filling up in America right now. And it's until we repent, it's going to keep growing and growing and growing. And that repulsion is going to get more wicked and more wicked. And Christ will redeem it. He will buy it. He will, he will pay for those sins, forgive us. And we can see the church rise up out of the shambles of what may have been once an, uh, America, what we know as America. We don't know what the future beholds, beholds for us. We don't know. But the repulsion is palatable and even still we have an obligation to know christ to declare christ to see such fruit press into the culture we find ourselves in so i'll end with some questions for you are you devoted to prayer dear christian can you say that you are devoted you are committed to it are you committed to walking consistently with christ are you preparing your speech beforehand salting it and seasoning it so that you'll be ready to give an answer to someone who asks about the hope that resides in you do you have a plan to develop your heart and mind new year what is your plan for this year are you to determine are you determined to sharpen both your heart and your mind what are you going to do about it what commitments are you going to make by god's grace what are you going to learn how are you going to grow what character traits do you not like about yourself but you're willing to deal with them before the lord because they may be sinful patterns or just foolish patterns what are you willing to do do you have a plan for that redeem the time today so that your time tomorrow is well spent and i pray that all of this is the case i pray the holy spirit will invigorate your hearts and minds so that we may live peaceable quiet and consistent lives for the sake of the gospel in the world Father, we come to You and we pray, Lord, for that very thing. We pray that Your Holy Spirit would indeed invigorate our hearts, challenge us, and bring our minds into a further comprehension of Your glory, Your holiness, Your grace, Your mercy. Help us to be consumed and devoted to a life of prayer, of of being watchful over ourselves. We ask that Your Spirit would also help us to walk in wisdom Lord. Help us to redeem the time. Help us not to be squanderers of what you've given us. We want to escape that judgment, not further it. Help us to have our words be gracious and seasoned with salt. We want to see the world come to redemption, and we ask that you would help us in that process, Lord. So we now commit our time here this evening Our time well spent as we've looked at your word as we now prepare ourselves for the table. May you be glorified in Christ's name, amen.